There are only two churches in the New Testament to which Paul wrote two epistles. One was the church at Corinth and the other the church at Thessalonica. And having just uh, recently completed a study of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, I thought it appropriate to look at his second epistle in a brief series of lessons because it is a brief epistle. Uh, but it is certainly packed with uh, tremendous and very pertinent uh, lessons for us in this, the final dispensation of time, the Christian age. Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians is just uh, three chapters long. But there's so much here that is of vital importance, obviously, as is the case with all of the Word of God. Vital importance to us today. And so tonight I'd like for us to look at chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, written shortly after Paul penned his first letter, which we have just completed studying. That would put the date of this epistle about A.D. 52 or 53, just a, a short time after he had written the first epistle in A.D. 52, this a little bit later, perhaps a year later. Both of these epistles, however, written from the same city, the city of Corinth, where Paul spent 18 months and certainly had opportunity, opportunity there, plenty of time to pen both these epistles from the city of Corinth. It is also the case that uh, Paul was accompanied while at Corinth by Silas, called Silvanus, the Latin uh, rendition of uh, Silas's name here in, in both epistles, and Timothy. Both of these men were with him at Corinth, and no record of all three being together after that time. And so that also lends further credence to the fact that this epistle, the second one to the Thessalonians, was written from the city of Corinth. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. The greeting to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is virtually identical to the greeting in the first epistle. That uh, greeting read, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins these, uh, these epistles uh, in the same fashion and addresses them from himself, of course, being the writer of the epistle, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy being those who were with him. They were not those who wrote the epistle. Paul is the penman, but these were his companions in labor in the city of Corinth at the time that he penned this epistle. I think it's worthy to note, too, that when he says to the church, or when he writes to the church of the Thessalonians, that he is not saying that the church belongs to the Thessalonians. Uh, when we talk about the church of Christ, we mean the church belonging to Christ, the church that is possessed by Christ, that is, the church that has Christ as its head. But as Paul uses the term church of the Thessalonians, he does not use it in that same sense. He obviously uses it in the sense that it is the church, the church of Christ, that is made up or comprised of the Thessalonians. I think I've mentioned before that there is another passage that is sometimes, I believe, confused along the same uh, line in Hebrews chapter 12. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 23 in that chapter, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, 
to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now there you have the expression church of the firstborn. Here you have the expression church of the Thessalonians, as is the case with the first epistle to the Thessalonians. In both cases, they mean the same. That is the church made up of the Thessalonians in the case of Thessalonica, but also in the case of the church of the firstborn, it is the church comprised of the firstborn ones. That's how that expression is used. In fact, the term firstborn or the word firstborn is, uh, is plural, which indicates that it can't be a description of the church of Christ as we think of the church of God or the church of Christ or just the church, one of the names for the church. And I think I have mentioned that sometimes you see that designation church of the firstborn as being one of the names in scripture for the church and the firstborn is attributed to Christ as the firstborn. But it cannot refer to Christ as the firstborn in Hebrews 12:23 because it is plural. Therefore, it can't be Christ. It is the firstborn ones, simply an expression describing those who are the Christians who comprise the church. Thus, the name Christian church is not an appropriate name for the church scripturally because it is named for the members, and the church is never named in scripture for its members. That's why it's important to distinguish between the expression church of the Thessalonians, meaning possession by them, which it does not, but simply the church made up of the Thessalonians. This is the church uh, of White Oak in the sense that it's the church composed of those who are members of the White Oak Church, but not belonging to White Oak, obviously. So to the church of the Thessalonians, the church made up of the Thessalonians, but notice this, in God, and that is vitally important. The church is in God, our Father, and in whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the full name, is it not, of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see that, we see it again in the same chapter over at verse 12. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There you have the full title, if you will, of the Lord. The Lord, meaning one who is supreme in authority. That's the idea of the Lord. It is sometimes translated master in the New Testament, but most often uh, the word kurios uh, in the original indicates one who is supreme in authority and is often translated Lord. But notice Jesus, that is Savior, the one who is our Savior, the one whose name was to be called Jesus in fulfillment of the prophecies a prophecy because he will save the people from their sins. Then you have the designation Christ, meaning the anointed one. The word Christ is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Messiah, which simply meant the anointed one, the one who was prophesied, the one who would come, who would take away the sins of the world. And so you have the full designation of, of our Lord and our Savior and our Messiah in the term the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is supreme in authority, the one who is our Savior, the one who is the anointed one, the Messiah, who was prophesied of and sent by God to become the Savior of the world. And then in verse 2, Paul uh, issues his uh, characteristic greeting, grace and peace. How many times in Paul's writings do we see those two words joined together. Sometimes the third word, mercy, is also added. But grace here and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is that grace emanates from God and 
Christ. Grace being the unmerited favor, as we often think of it, and rightfully so, the unmerited favor of God. That is, there's nothing that we can do to earn or merit God's favor. He bestows it upon us, but obviously there's something we do to accept it. And this very chapter we're studying tonight will make that abundantly clear, that our obedience is essential. But what flows logically from grace, the acceptance of God's grace as we accept it through our uh, obedient response to his grace, what flows logically from that process is what? Peace. The peace that surpasses understanding. Peace comes from God. Peace from the God of peace. As Paul uh, referred to him in the Philippian epistle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that reminds us that the only way we can experience the peace that is worth having, the peace that uh, surpasses all understanding, is to have that peace that comes from the God of peace and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 3, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you. That word bound indicates literally an obligation or a debt. We are in debt. We have a debt. We have an obligation literally an obligation to thank God always for you, brethren. Why? It is fitting that we do that, and then he gives the reasons for uh, that thankfulness. And incidentally, who uh, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ has ever walked the earth who said more and, uh, and uh, did more uh, in terms of expressing thanksgiving to God the Father than did the Apostle Paul? Uh, he was one who abounded in thanksgiving, and who expressed that thanksgiving time and time again in his writings. And he does so here, saying that it's fitting for me to do so. Here's the reason. Because, because your faith grows exceedingly. What does that tell us about faith? He commended them for the fact that their faith was growing, but what is implied here is that faith has to grow. It has to grow in order to be commended by uh, by God or by the Apostle Paul here, as is the case with the Thessalonians. He commended them. He was bound, obligated to thank God for them because their faith was growing. And how often in Scripture are we enjoined to have a faith that grows, but not only grows, but grows exceedingly. And also the love of every one of you all, what? Abounds toward each other. You remember back in the first epistle to the Thessalonians in chapter 3 and verse 12 what Paul's desire for them was as he expressed it in that verse he said and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. Now he writes in the second epistle obviously having received some word uh, somehow from a messenger who had come to him from Thessalonica, he had obviously received word that indeed the very thing he had prayed for them, the very thing he had desired for them, the very thing he admonished them to do was indeed happening. Their faith was growing exceedingly. Their love was abounding. And no one could have been more thrilled about it than the Apostle Paul. And so he said, I am so thankful to learn that this is the case. How did he learn it? We have no idea. We don't have to prove that someone brought him word because this is an inspired man. So if no one brought him word, the Holy Spirit could have and would have certainly revealed to him what the situation was at Thessalonica. But it's quite likely that he had received word that indeed the church at Thessalonica 
was growing. Now, does that mean that everyone at Thessalonica was on the same page and in the same sentence and in the same word in the same sentence? That is, that all were growing like this, that there were absolutely no problems at Thessalonica? No, because before we finish this second epistle, we are going to see that there were some there who were walking disorderly. There were some there who were busybodies. There were some there who were idle. There were some there who mistakenly thought that um, the Lord was coming again very soon, so they just simply sat down, quit working, and waited for the Lord to come. And this is part of the reason for writing this epistle, is to further correct some misapprehensions along those lines that he had introduced in the first epistle. There was idleness there. There were those who were busybodies. There were those who needed the error corrected about the Lord's coming. And to restore the tranquility in the church that was not uh, as it should have been in every sense. But that did not keep him, uh, despite all of that, that did not keep him from commending those who needed to be commended. And what we really see here is a picture of, of virtually any congregation. How many congregations today exist where every single member of that congregation is exactly where that member needs to be in terms of his or her faith or his or her uh, love? Do we have any who could be here tonight, for example, who aren't here tonight, do you think? Uh, could you look around and uh, perhaps deduce that uh, quite likely there may be some here who could have made the effort to be here who aren't here, do the same on Wednesday night, for example, or not just in relation to attendance but in other areas of involvement? Do we find everyone as dedicated as everyone else as far as any congregation, as much as there is to be commended about the White Oak Church? Uh, are we where we would like to be in every respect as far as every single member being as strong as every other member? We are not. We are not. That does not mean, though, that we need to dwell on the negatives. We need to deal with them, and we certainly need to address the problems that arise in the church wherever, and Paul makes that abundantly clear here because later he's going to deal with withdrawing fellowship from those who are walking disorderly right here in this Second Thessalonian epistle. But by the same token, we need to encourage and, uh, and commend those who are doing what they should and encourage them in every way, and that's what we see here. We see Paul commending these brethren, so many of them, whose faith was growing exceedingly, whose love was abounding toward each other and uh, toward all men. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now, when he says boast, he's not using that term in, a, in the wrong sense. He's just saying, we, we are using you, whose faith is growing exceedingly, whose love is abounding. We're using you as, as incentives and motivation to other congregations, the churches of God. Now, here, the churches of God would be uh, indicative of the possession that God has of the church. God is uh, the author of salvation. It is perfectly right in scriptural to refer to the church as the church of God, not in a denominational sense, as that denomination exists today, obviously, but it is a designation that is scriptural, obviously, as in churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16. Here, he uses the term churches of God. He's talking about congregations, isn't he? He's not talking about 
denominations, all of which comprise the one church. He's talking about the one church, which is comprised of various congregations, as in Romans 16, 16. So he's saying in the congregations, in various congregations, what we are doing is letting those congregations know about how well you are doing. And we're encouraging them to emulate your example of patience, which indicates steadfastness, standing up under trial, and faith in what? In all your persecutions and tribulations that you will endure someday? No, that you are enduring, which is clear evidence that they were suffering some persecution at the very time at which Paul wrote this epistle. And yet, despite that persecution, they were what? They were faithful, not only faithful, but their faith was growing exceedingly. They were loving each other more and more each day, and all of this was occurring right in the midst of persecution and trial and tribulation, which says what? The church can flourish and quite often does flourish when it is faced with persecution. How many times have you heard the expression concerning the early church and the persecution that arose against the church that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the kingdom. In other words, the more blood that was shed among Christians, the more the gospel spread. The more the kingdom grew, the more blood that was shed by the enemies of Christ, the more the church grew. Why? Because of faith. It takes strong faith. It takes strong faith to face persecution. It takes strong faith to face death, doesn't it? I mentioned my friend Jim Tittle in Maryville who's dying. I went to visit him to say so long just recently. And I couldn't help but think about something that was said in a lecture. I was, a lectureship I was participating in up in North Carolina just prior to that where one of the speakers, I think it was Dan Bailey, who mentioned how strong faith needs to be. As we get ready to face death, and especially when we, we know we're facing death, faith is going to have to be strong to endure. And that is so true, isn't it? We need strong faith. We need faith that is growing exceedingly, not only to face death. And Jim Diddle has a strong faith. I believe that very strongly myself. But it takes that kind of faith to, to be able to face knowing that you're getting ready to leave this world. It takes faith to endure the kind of persecution and tribulation that these Thessalonians were enduring here. And therefore, we need to apply ourselves to, to building and growing that faith so that it becomes stronger every day. And in verse 5, he writes, which is manifest evidence. What is manifest evidence? Plain evidence, the idea manifest, plain evidence. What is? These persecutions and tribulations. These persecutions and tribulations that you're enduring, they are evidence of the righteous judgment of God. How? In what sense? The idea here is that they, they, are, they are showing or indicating that God is going to take care of those who are persecuting you and causing you these tribulations God is not going to overlook this. God will even things out. He will take care of that. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. In other words, the suffering that you're enduring, the persecution that you're undergoing, 
is evidence that all of that's going to be rectified one of these days. Vengeance is going to be God's, says the Lord. And I'm going to take care of your persecutors. And he'll make that abundantly clear in the verses that we're about to read that follow this one. But he says, don't you be discouraged because, as we've talked about before from the old illustration, God doesn't settle all of his accounts in October. You remember the illustration of the atheist who... uh, as I, one uh, version of it I've seen, wrote to the editor of a paper and uh, said, uh, I uh, live next door to a Christian farmer and my crops come in every fall just like his do and I don't claim to believe in God and he is a Christian, so please explain that. And the editor wrote back and said, God doesn't settle all of his accounts in October. In other words, your time is coming when time is no more unless you do something about it. And so that's really the thrust of what Uh, Paul is saying here is that don't you be discouraged don't you be destroyed by these persecutions because all it is is showing that God is in control and will ultimately take care of those who are persecuting you and here's the further evidence of that meaning when he says in verse 6 since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you In other words, the fact that you're suffering on behalf of the kingdom is an indication that ultimately God is going to take care of that situation and that you are doing the right thing. It shows you to be worthy of the kingdom that you are suffering. Remember 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution in some form at some time or another, to one degree or another, all of us, if we live righteously, will suffer persecution. But let that be a token of the fact that we're worthy of being in the kingdom of God and suffering for the kingdom. Remember when Peter and John initially left the presence of the council upon their beating by that council, they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name? And that's exactly what... Paul is driving at here. Now notice, it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Stop right there before we go on. How many people do you think there are in this world tonight who deny that statement right there? There are myriads of people who deny it. In other words, there are those who say a righteous God is not going to send scores of people to hell. In the first place, God doesn't send anyone to hell, does he? People send themselves there based upon their unrighteousness. But what Paul clearly affirms is that it is a righteous thing with God to do what? To repay with tribulation those who trouble you. That is, the disobedient will suffer the righteous retribution of the God of heaven. And it is not accurate to say that a just and loving God would not punish people eternally in hell. A just God must repay tribulation and sin because God cannot tolerate or overlook sin. He cannot countenance sin. He cannot be a part of sin. And His justice demands that he deal righteously because he's perfect in righteousness and justice. It demands that he deal with that. And so it is a righteous thing. And Paul 
affirms that. It's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and what? Now we go on, verse 7. And to give you who are troubled rest with us. Now, he doesn't say here to give you who are troubled rest in the sense of a verb here. This is a noun. To you who are troubled rest with us, but in italics in the New King James it says, and to give. Give is in italics as supplying something that is, needs to be understood there. And that is that the word rest is not a verb here. He's not saying, and you who are troubled, rest, verb. You rest with us. No, he's saying I'm, we're going to give. He's going to give you rest, a noun. He's going to give you who are troubled rest. He's going to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and he's going to give you who are troubled what? Rest. The promised rest of the faithful. Remember the writing in Revelation chapter 14 at verse 13. The same idea is expressed there. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from the labors and their works follow them. Now there, there's the verb rest from their labors, here the noun form, that they be given rest from their labors. And their works follow them in the Revelation passage. So he's going to give rest to those who are troubled, that is, to those who are faithful. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and here's the scene, in flaming fire, the kind of fire, what's involved there, we are not told. It'll be a magnificent and sobering scene. However, in flaming fire, taking vengeance, listen to this, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two classes of people are under consideration here. It is not the case that he is saying he'll take vengeance on those who do not know God and obey not the gospel of Christ. The article is present before each class. Notice how it's translated in the New King James. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those, a particular class, who do not know God, and again on those, article is there again, another class, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who willingly make themselves ignorant of God, they are without excuse, obviously. Uh, Romans 1, 28 and following makes it abundantly clear that we ought to be able to know enough about God to seek Him from, from from living in this wonderful creation in which we live. Those who do not seek God, those who do not know God, are going to be punished eternally. But even those, there's another class of those who claim to know God, even those who profess to be Christians, but have not rendered obedience to the plan for making one a Christian, revealed to us in the New Testament, they will be lost because they have not obeyed the gospel. You cannot get obeying the gospel out of this text. There have been those who've tried to get it out of this text. And by saying that basically it's the same group of people being described uh, together here in one group. No, there are two groups here. Those who 
uh, who do not know God, who do not seek God, who have no interest in knowing God, yes, but even those who claim to have come to know God and profess to be followers of Christ, if they have not obeyed the gospel, they too will be lost. In other words, we must obey the gospel. And if you look at Mark 16, 15 and 16, you have a very succinct description given by the Lord himself of what that involves. What did Jesus say to his apostles in Mark's account of the Great Commission? He told them to go into all the world and preach what? The gospel to every creature. And then he added this, verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Go into all the world and preach what? The gospel. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Taking vengeance on those who know not God and on those who what? Do not obey the gospel. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Preach the what? Gospel. 15 and 16 of Mark 16 tie the gospel to what? Belief and baptism there. The very thing that most of the world claiming to profess Christ deny. They deny it. And yet the Lord himself tied the gospel with baptism in that commission as recorded by Mark. And Paul here says that group of people, that class of people who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough to profess to know God. It's not enough to profess to be a Christian. One must make sure that he has what? Obeyed the gospel of Christ. Otherwise, verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Punished with what? Everlasting destruction. Is that annihilation? How can that be annihilation if it's everlasting? Annihilation is not everlasting. If you're annihilated, wiped out at death, you're annihilated. There's nothing everlasting about that punishment. Everlasting destruction, how? From the presence of the Lord. In outer darkness, away from the light of God's countenance and from the glory of his power. When will this happen? At the rapture? Where's the rapture? When he comes in what? That day. One day. One time. One moment. That's when he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed it will be in that same what? Day, that same hour that the unrighteous will suffer everlasting destruction and the saints everlasting bliss as they admire the one whom they have loved and obeyed when he comes again. Because what was believed? Some better felt than told vision or experience. That's what convinced a person to become a Christian, right? No, because our what was believed? Our testimony among you was believed. Where does that place the emphasis in what produces faith? In the word, in the testimony. In this case, Paul's testimony was in him, an inspired man, and he related that testimony to them but we are getting that testimony tonight from reading Second Thessalonians. 
as we get from reading all of God's Word, and particularly the New Testament where the terms of admission into the kingdom and where the pattern for remaining faithful in that kingdom, where all that is revealed. Testimony. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That word testimony might not be bad to circle it because it indicates that it's the Word of God that produces faith and not the better felt than told experience. Verse 11, therefore, and verse 12, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. And how were they called? By the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, you flip over a little bit to which he called you by our gospel. Now he says that you would be worthy of this calling. And he says in the next chapter, you were called by the gospel. Therefore, there's no other way to be called other than by the gospel. And that he would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith. The work of what? Faith. Faith works? Yes. The work of faith. God's faith, right? No, of course not. God's faith is not under consideration. The work of your faith, the Thessalonians' faith. Your faith has to work. His goodness and the work of faith with power. To what end? That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. According to what? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about it. According to the grace of our God. But what has he just mentioned in verse 11? The work of faith. Their faith. What had he mentioned in verse 3? Your faith grows exceedingly. But now he says at the end of this chapter, according to the grace of our God. It is the grace of God that brought the plan by which you can be saved and were saved, you Thessalonians, as you answered the call that came by the grace of God, the call that came through the gospel. And when you answered the call of the gospel by faith and obedient faith, you were saved by what? God's grace alone? No. God's grace through your working faith. Time and time again, in passage after passage after passage, the Bible makes abundantly clear that salvation is by grace through a working, obedient faith. And we've just seen another such instance as we have begun our study of Second Thessalonians. And tonight, if you would be saved, it is by the grace of God because that's the ground of salvation. And without that grace, there can be no salvation. But it is not, as we have just seen, by grace alone. You're going to have to have a faith that responds to that grace and responds by what? Working. Working by moving you to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus to be the Christ, and then to be buried in baptism. Because that's obeying the gospel. And those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, as we have just studied, will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. Obey the gospel tonight if you haven't, because you may not have another opportunity. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. Act upon that belief by repenting, turning from your sins. Confess him to be the Christ, and then be buried in baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Jesus promised. If you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing.
to encourage.